Welcome back to Lessons Learned. I am Laura Winter, sports broadcaster, podcaster, obviously, host and journalist, and I am so excited to be bringing you another series of my podcast. We are about to delve into the minds of brilliant sports people once again to discover the pinnacle moments that have shaped their professional and personal lives and the lessons they have learned along the way. Perhaps lessons we could all take some comfort and inspiration from too. Lessons Learned is now out weekly, dropping every Monday, so make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. So today, my guest is Olympic bronze medalist and 2018 world champion triathlete Vicky Holland. We are about to talk about the impact of a home Olympic Games, London 2012, gaining confidence, a training camp which would change her life and much more. We are recording at the start of 2021, so unfortunately, like last year, due to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, Vicky and I spoke virtually at the end of a mammoth training day for her, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible for you. Enjoy. A very warm welcome to Rio 2016 Olympic bronze medalist Vicky Holland. Vicky grew up swimming and running before discovering triathlon at Loughborough University in 2005. By 2014, Vicky had won two world titles in the mixed relay squad, competed at London 2012 and won Commonwealth bronze in Glasgow 2014 before clinching Olympic bronze in 2016. In 2018, she became world champion. Vicky is also a seasoned commentator and pundit, and like me, a former Gloucester City Swimming Club member, and we come from the same part of the world too. Vicky, how are you? Welcome along. <laughs> I'm really well, Laura. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm very happy today because it's this glorious weather toward the, we're recording at the end of March, and it's a beautiful sunny day, and I've been for a bike ride and I've got tan lines, so I'm super happy. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I mean, it is an incredible day, and it is the sort of day that we've dreamt about for months on end now, so yeah, make the most of it, I say. It's been a super long, hard winter, so whereabouts in the world are you, and how is training going? Yeah, I'm in Bath. Um, that's where I live with uh, Reese, my husband, who's also my coach, and my dog. Congratulations, by the way, because I know you got married kind of in lockdown, didn't you? We did. We did a bit of a lockdown wedding. It was end of October last year, so just before the proper lockdown number two. Um, but it was still at the point where you could only have 15 people at a wedding, and we did a bit of a, a rustic vibe of out on a hill. Um, it was, yeah, it was really special. It was something that we would never have normally been able to do, but we were able to kind of change things pretty last minute, get married, and then, you know, we are hopeful that we can have uh, the proper celebration with all friends and family later this year should should the world be turning as normal again by then <laughs> oh I love it and how's your dog as well oh Winnie I mean it has been probably the best thing about lockdown has been that I've been at home so much more than we planned um, in a normal Olympic year everything we planned for 2020 there was going to be really long stints where we were going to be away out of the country and we have a really good sort of second home for her to go to in Reese's family um, but we still hate leaving her and that was really the the one big bonus of 2020 was that we got to stay at home with her and that we've been able to stay at home with her all this winter so even though I've had to brave the UK winter for its absolute entirety for the first time I'm in I don't even know how many years six seven years maybe um I at least got to spend it with my dog who I'm obsessed with you know so that was nice 
<laughs> she's beautiful. I've seen her on Instagram. She is, um, she's a stunner. And I think dogs saved people during lockdown, genuinely. They were just an absolute joy. And for them, they must have had the time of their lives because suddenly their, their humans were at home with them. Yeah, I think so. Although sometimes we say that we kind of felt like Winnie wanted us to leave again. Um, so she's used to, we never leave her for, you know, all day um, because we don't have normal working hours. But we do sometimes leave for maybe four hours or so for, for a long ride. Um, doesn't happen very often because normally not both of us go on the ride. So she's not normally left for that long, but she does get left. And she's very, very comfortable and happy being left. So when we're home all the time, I think she's like, can you guys just leave? Because I want to have my nap on the sofa now and you're sort of distracting. Um, so, yeah, she's probably going to be happy when the world starts to go back to normal a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think my dog would agree that he's probably sick of everyone being around all the time, sort of poking yeah. him and wanting attention from him. Uh, he's um, really cool, but this is too much. <laughs> yeah, please stop. And obviously it's all gearing up towards Tokyo 2021 and it was announced that there were won't be overseas spectators going so I guess UK fans can't go over and, and watch you compete in the triathlon but it's still a game isn't it it's still all to play for yeah it's it's sad that there won't be overseas spectators and I think I had real hope that by the time the Olympics rolled around this year the world would be back to normal-ish in such a state if you like that we we could have that and that it would be this amazing sort of party that everybody wanted this spectacle this celebration of you know we've been through this rough time the whole world has and here we all are together again celebrating in the best possible way or as I think it is the best possible way in terms of competitive sports but you know it is still an Olympics it will still be the pinnacle <clears throat> sorry the pinnacle for many people's sporting career for many people to watch in terms of sport unfortunately it'll just have to be on the tv and the one thing we are still hopeful of is that there will be Japanese spectators and the one thing we do know is that they are sport mad in Japan they possibly don't get enough credit for that but they are they're absolutely bonkers for sport and whenever we do race a triathlon in Japan we're really well supported so fingers crossed there will still be some kind of you know atmosphere and support on the on the course on the day Absolutely. Do you know, that actually leads us very, very nicely on to your first moment um, in which you've learnt wonderful, brilliant, valuable life lessons from. And that was watching the Olympic Games at six years old. And Vicky, I couldn't agree more that actually my earliest memories are watching sport and watching things like the Games and Wimbledon. And just how powerful that was as a young girl growing up watching sport and it becoming just such a part of my life. Yeah, I mean, for me, as, as you said there, I was six years old. I watched the Barcelona Olympic Games on TV and I don't remember tons from my life at six years old. I think that's probably quite normal. I haven't got loads of vivid memories, but this is probably one of my most vivid. I just remember being in our living room in my parents' house, the house they still own now. Um, I remember what chair my mum was sat in. I remember her excitement watching uh, Lymphor Christie especially win the Olympic, uh, the Olympic gold in the 100-metre sprint. And I remember her sort of jumping around and me feeding off her in enthusiasm and her excitement. And I, I, I'd misheard his name. I thought he was called Lymphor Christie. Um, so I remember running around saying, look for crispy, look for crispy, just, you know, going crazy around the living room. And I didn't understand exactly what I was watching at that time. And I didn't really know what my life would entail or my career, where, where it would go. I didn't know that I could be a sports person, but 
I knew that what I was watching was really cool and I knew it was really infectious and I knew it made me want to go outside and do more sport. And for someone who was already an intensely competitive young girl with three older siblings, one relatively close to me in age who um, I used to compete against everything, things he didn't even know I was competing against him with, you know, who could eat breakfast the fastest and things like that, which he, he never even knew we were in a competition. Um, but I can tell you I always won because that was just sort of who I was. And, you know, I think... I think then realizing there was this massive spectacle that you could watch on TV as well, where where you could go out there and, and sort of show the world that you were the best. That was something that really resonated with me, even at six years old. And yeah, I don't think it's probably surprising that it is one of my most vivid childhood memories. Yeah, absolutely. As you became an Olympian, obviously it kind of resonated even deeper and more with you that that was one of the earliest memories. Um, at the time, how much sport were you doing and what sports were you doing? Because I knew you as a swimmer. I also knew that you were then also, you were running alongside that as well, which led perfectly into your career as a triathlete. But at the time, age six, I guess you're doing a bit of everything. Yeah, I think at six, I, I started swimming at six. I can't tell you whether I'd actually started uh, at the time of those Barcelona games or not. I imagine I probably had because... I know that I started swimming when um, my brother went to football club on a on a Saturday morning and my mum needed something for me to do at the same time, wanted to, you know, an activity that I could do as well. And it just so happened that the swimming pool was opposite the football club in the little town near where where we lived. Um, so I just started going to the going to the swimming lessons there. And so, yeah, it was around six that I started swimming. But even even if I hadn't started by the time of those games, I was already doing gymnastics at school. Um, I was at tennis. I think I'd already started doing that. I was playing, probably should have stuck with tennis. Been way more, um, <laughs> way more lucrative. money involved in that. Yeah, it's more lucrative, isn't it? It is. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure I had the hand-eye coordination for that. So maybe, maybe it was never going to be my thing. Yeah, this is the swimmers don't tend to fare that well on land, I find. Maybe I'm just speaking of my own experiences. No, I, but... think, I do think you're right. As a general rule, swimmers, some of the very best swimmers that I, I know, I mean, I see a lot of the GB swimmers here in Bath because it's one of their national centres and they are poetry in the water. They are, they're absolutely unbelievable to watch. It's, it's really beautiful, actually, especially as someone who is still trying to swim for my career, but it's a bit harder for me. Um, but then you see them on land and you just think you don't look like even the way they walk, you know, it's not like an athlete. It's it's completely different. And then as soon as they get in the water, they're just amazing. So, yeah, I do think that there's, there is a, a correlation between swimmers being just meant for the water um, yes. and not for, not for on land. So, yeah, tennis was probably never going to be the one for me. <laughs> but obviously you were super active as a kid and therefore watching a lot of sport as well. Why do you think sport is so powerful? And it's a question that I, I struggle to sometimes articulate an answer to as well, because... Obviously, sport means a huge amount to me. It's become a huge part of my life away from work, in work. The same for you, I know. Why is it so powerful? What does it mean to you? It's such a difficult question. I think there's, there's so many different levels to it as well. I think it's, um, it's a case of it's really pure and raw. And there is this element, especially when you watch it, you can see the emotion and the depth that someone's put into their preparation to something, what it means to them. It's not just that day, that event, it's everything that goes before. Um, 
for me, I think it massively taught me a lot of values as I grew up about um, the value of hard work, of resilience, of perseverance, all those sorts of things that you don't realise probably until you're quite a bit older, quite how valuable they are and sort of how well they cross over into other areas of your life. And I think there is an element as well of inspiration in sport. There's an element of or aspiration even that you get as a as someone watching a very very good athlete in whatever sport it is that they do that you can aspire to be as good as them you can be inspired to take up that that activity that sport um there's so many different elements there's especially when it comes to things like running or endurance sport there's a feeling of it's never too late you can take that up at whatever age um, you can take up running in your 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond. You don't have to be breaking records. You can break your own records. Um, but there's just so much to it. And, and on top of all of that, there's the drama and the entertainment. I mean, how many times have we watched matches, whether it's tennis, whether it's football, or whether it's actual races, where the, the plot seems to almost have been planned by an author? It's so good that what you're seeing on TV, you can't believe that, that that's just organic, that it happens like that. Um, so yeah, the theater and the spectacle of it is as well something that's that's always, I guess, captured me. So that's a very uh, I guess rambling answer, but there's just so much to it. <laughs> no, there's me saying it's hard to articulate, and you've just done exactly that. Every layer and level of sport and why we love it, I think it's just been encapsulated there. So thank you. Uh, growing up as well, when you were swimming and then running, at that point, did you want to be uh, an Olympic runner? Or swimmer or did you know that perhaps triathlon was something for you to come later in life no I think um when I started swimming definitely that was the thing that I wanted to do and as I sort of went through my teenage years especially um my aspiration was definitely to compete for Great Britain as a swimmer um I think as I, I started running a little bit later I started doing cross-country when I went to secondary school and then took up track running a little bit later, sort of 14, 15 years old, and quickly realized that I was probably a bit better at track running than I was at cross country. And uh, it must have been about 15, 16, when I sort of realized that actually I was better at running than I was at swimming. Um, at this point, I really didn't know anything much about triathlon, and it wasn't something that was kind of on my radar. But I was very, very into um, both swimming and running. And I think by the time I went to university at 18, that was when I thought that I was going to be a runner. I thought that I was going off to university. It was going to Loughborough, the dream, the biggest sports union in the country where I'd wanted to go for years. And I was going there and I was hopefully going to continue swimming. Um, but really, the running was the one that I felt like I was going there to try and become a runner. Um, and uh, yeah, within my first few weeks at university, got sort of collared by the triathlon coach there who sort of wanted me to be involved, wanted to, me to join in. And it took them a little while. It took them a few months to fully get my interest. At first, I sort of held them at arm's length a little bit. Um, I got on a bike, did a few, couple of bike sessions here and there. I was doing some some gym work with the triathletes as well, but I was sort of like, nah, I'm not really, I'm not, I'm not really interested in that. Felt like it was something that maybe I would do one day down the line, but it was probably more for people who weren't as successful at swimming and running in their own right. I felt like it was almost like if you're not really good enough as a swimmer or a runner, then you become a triathlete. And that was definitely the opinion that I had as an 18 year old. Um, but yeah, a few months down the line, I had a, an injury niggle. Um, I wasn't funded as a runner or a swimmer, wasn't quite good enough at either of those. 
And triathlon sort of took me under their wing. They got me all the treatment I needed, all the care that I needed um, and invited me on a training camp. And I went on this sort of two week training camp with them. And I came back and I went, I think I might be a triathlete now. I think I think I might have I might have bought in. I think that might be it. And yeah, sure enough, that summer. So that would have been 2005, a while ago now. Um, I did my first triathlon races. And since then, yeah, I've just just been a triathlete. And that was really when the triathlon sort of dream, if you like, took off. Because before that, it just hadn't really been on my radar. I love that. You just did that two week camp and then never look back that's it and then became an Olympic medalist (laughs) yeah I think I sort of I knew some of the athletes already because I'd been sort of like dipping my toe in if you like in Loughborough and I had this sort of ongoing relationship with the coach that I kind of knew and that he would keep in touch with me um but yeah I was definitely kind of keeping them slightly at arm's length and then um this camp I went on I just enjoyed it so much and felt so kind of um, cared for, valued, um, loved what the other athletes were about. And I thought, yeah, you know, the thing that really appealed as well, I should add, is that I was coming to a point where I felt I was going to have to choose between swimming and running. And the running was probably where my my talent lay, but I didn't want to give up swimming. I loved swimming. And I felt like, oh, I don't really want to have to sort of park that. So this was like, like a nifty little way to actually keep doing the both of them and sort of, well, just see how triathlon goes. <laughs> Yeah, just so, yeah. in the bike as well. Best of three yeah. worlds. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it took me a long time to love the bike. It really did. The bike was almost a means to an end for a really long time. But, you know, I can I can honestly say now that I do enjoy riding my bike. Um, good job because I do it a lot. Um, but, yeah, it took me a long time to actually find the, the love and the enjoyment of that in the same way that I had a love and enjoyment of swimming and running. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So 2005, then the dream began of becoming a triathlete. 2012, you're at a home games. That's your second moment in life. And I mean, my God, what an incredible two weeks that was. 2012, um, those two weeks, I still think are one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And I didn't come out of 2012 covered in glory. I didn't come home with a medal. Um, But I just think for everyone who is a sports mad and be British. <laughs> London 2012 was just so special. Um, I had, I remembered where I was. Uh, it was in 2005. I remember where I was when we were awarded the games um, and no one thought we were going to win them. And I remember where we were. And I remember I was in a friend's house in Loughborough at university and I'm being sat on their sofa, having just started triathlon, thinking I've got seven years, but I've got to work out how I'm going to get there because I really want to be there. And, you know, both my parents are from London or very close to London. And I just, it was everything to get there. You know, at that point in my career, getting to the games was a huge battle. Um, and I saw the Olympics all about firsthand, you know, 20 years after watching it go ahead <laughs> as, a, as a six-year-old on TV, kind of not quite understanding, but knowing it was really cool. I then got to do it. And... I left London with all these incredible experiences that will still be some of my fondest memories probably forever. But knowing that actually I put so much effort into just thinking I've got to get there, I've got to get there, I've got to get there. That Actually, then when I got there, I thought, this is really cool, but actually I want more. And I think it was the first time I really kind of thought, all right, well, I've ticked that off now, that nice little sort of life ambition. I've gone to the Olympic Games but I want something bigger now. I want, I, I, I want to achieve more. And I remember saying to one of my friends, you know, 
you go to one Olympic Games for the experience, you go to two for hardware. And that was my kind of mantra for four years. And I made some really big changes after London. I'd, I'd been in a, a training group for three years at that point where I'd spent, you know, nine months a year out of the out of the UK, living out of a suitcase, traveling around the world, just following this training group wherever it went, going to all these races all over the place. And I'd learned a huge amount about myself as a as a person, as an athlete, as a professional, what it would take. Um, some of the girls I was training with day in day out were were better than me and one of them won the olympic silver medal in london so that was quite cool to sort of be a part of that build up and see what it really did take but i knew that i probably needed to move on after 2012 from that group i'd learn possibly all i could learn <clears throat> sorry i needed i needed something different i needed a change and um yeah i sort of really committed to making those changes because i knew that I actually had to shift something, something had to give, something had to change. I had to, I had to evolve as an athlete if I was going to come home from, from Rio as a medalist. It wasn't just going to happen. I had to, had to do something big. So that was, that was a really big turning point for me. Just, it was, it was an incredible experience in London and I have, you know, so many fond memories, both on and off the race course. I don't think I've ever experienced a race like it for the support um, the sheer noise out on the course, the goosebumps of that day were just absolutely out of this world. Um, the experience that we were able to have as athletes in the village afterwards, being able to go into London together, all those kind of things, different countries, different sports, way better than the experience I actually had in, in Rio in the end. And again, will be completely different to the experience we have in Tokyo just because of the world we're living in right now. Um, so I'm so grateful I had that. But yeah, I think London just sparked something new in me. It sparked this thing of, well, that was really, really cool. But I've seen all these amazing people do really incredible things in London. And I, I want in. I want some of that. And so things changed. <laughs> so London kind of lit the fire in your belly for, mm -hmm. right, I want more. And I, and I want bigger. I want something bigger and better than what I've experienced. And like you said, I want hardware. Can you pinpoint now, looking back, what was lacking in London specifically, perhaps physically for you, in terms of numbers, in terms of any technicalities within triathlon, within the three disciplines? Do you know kind of what you needed to work on specifically? Oh, I think looking back now, um, it was an all round set. I know all round as an athlete, I wasn't quite there. I was probably at the time, probably closest in the swim, which is interesting given I think actually now it would, it would definitely not be the swim that I would consider my real strength out of the three. Um, but I was at the time, especially, I think just given the level of the other girls in our sport, I was considered a really quite good swimmer. Um, but yeah, all round as a, as an athlete, I just wasn't quite there. And I think when I look back to the training that I was doing at the time and the group I was with at the time, um, that the specific specificity, sorry, of that training group worked to get me to a certain level, but I don't think they would have ever got me, um, where I've got now. And the training I do now is much more volume. Um, it's much more specific in its intensity It's probably a lot more polarized, I would say. So really high intensity or really low intensity rather than more the middle groundwork that I used to do. So with differences like that, and I would say in London, I didn't know that I didn't know even when I made this decision, okay, I've probably got to move on now. I didn't know what it was I really needed, but I knew it was something different. And I knew that I had this, I said, this fire in my belly to do something different. Um, 
but yeah, I didn't know exactly what it was. And I would say as well that watching, so the men's race was a huge factor as well. So for those who don't know, Alistair and Johnny Brownlee won gold and silver in the men's triathlon in London. Those were our first ever Olympic medals in triathlon. And they've been a long time coming because we've been a strong triathlon nation for a very, very long time. And the triathlon event went into the Olympics in 2000, but we underdelivered, and then we underdelivered in Athens and then we underdelivered in Beijing and there was sickness and there was all sorts of injury problems that went through these, these three cycles. And really it was fourth time that we actually got it right. And Alistair and Johnny were massive favorites to, to win medals in, in London and they delivered it. And their race, their race was three days after mine. And with about 24 hours notice, I got an email from the uh, British triathlon media lady who asked me if I wanted to do some sort of guest punditry for the BBC for the race. At that time, I'd never done any anything like that, but you know, I like talking <laughs> and uh, that doesn't absolutely mean it's going to correlate across to being articulate on a media platform. But I jumped at the chance. I just said, absolutely. Yes, I'll do it. And what that did was mean that I was there commentating or rather being guest commentator, giving a bit of punditry input to the greatest race that as British triathletes we'd ever seen. And I was there above the finish gantry because that was the position that we had in the commentary box as Alistair crossed the line with the Union Jack winning our first ever gold in, in Olympic triathlon. And as someone who was a triathlete and British and, you know, at the Olympic Games, that was huge. So, yeah, it kind of gave me this, this sort of this start in, in a bit of commentary work, which I've now done a little bit more of. And hopefully one day we'll do a bit more of again. Um, but, yeah, it was it was an inspirational moment, I think, as an athlete to, to be there and to see that and to see our sport succeed you know, our country succeed in our sport. Yeah, it laid the path for you then to become the first woman to win uh, an Olympic medal in 2016, right? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, again, I, I, I refer back to the fact that we really have had talent in this sport for such a long time. And there have been a good few women before me who could, and some might say should, have delivered medals at the Olympic Games and were certainly capable of doing so. But for whatever reason, the cards never fell in their, in their favour and things happened. And triathlon is one of those sports with three disciplines. There's so much that can happen in a race. There's so much that can happen in the build-up. Um, it's a high-intensity, high-demand um, high sport with lots of volume. Um, you can get injured at any point when you're pushing close to the edge. It's so hard. Things just seem to have happened to our teams over the years where these women had not been able to deliver on the day. And even in London 2012, Helen Jenkins went in as a favourite for medal, but not many people knew that she'd been battling an injury for three months. So she was really kind of holding it together just about to get to that start line. And she got there and I still think she, and she says this, she would agree that she can't believe how well she actually did. She finished fifth. Yeah. And a lot of people would have assumed that was, desperately disappointing and on one level it was for her because she obviously wanted that medal and she wanted to win and she was capable of that medal but she was hideously injured and she managed, still managed to deliver that kind of performance and hold on for I think it was about eight and a half k of the 10k run before she got dropped from that leading group and I just think that was a really incredible performance from her and by the time Rio rolled around all three of us British girls on the start line it was Helen again myself and non-Stanford any one of us could have won a medal on the right day 
So the fact that it was me feels almost like, gosh, aren't I the lucky one? And then sometimes I think, how the hell did I deliver that? How did I actually get it right? I'm not sure. <laughs> but I did. So it's okay. <laughs> we'll talk about that a bit later on because that's your imposter syndrome coming out there, um, yes. which I know we're going to mention a bit <laughs> later on. Very quickly on the commentary, how nervous were you before going live on BBC at a home Olympic Games? I'd imagine a little bit less nervous than competing in a home Olympic Games. Yeah. Or maybe not. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's really funny. I don't remember that about it. I don't remember the nerves. I just remember thinking, well, this is cool. This is that's cool. Good. You know, I'm doing something different. My event had already been um, and we knew that Alistair and Johnny were such favourites that it was just exciting. And I kind of looked at it like, well, I've got the best seat in the house now to watch this event I'm super interested in. Um, And on top of that, all I've got to do is when they ask me a question or when they throw to me, um, just say something about triathlon, say something relevant to what's happening on the course. And yeah, it's not like a really difficult interview. It's like, yeah, I know this stuff. This is, this is my jam. This is what I do. So Actually, I, I don't remember being nervous. I remember just thinking it was really cool. <laughs> How much parting had you done since your event, though? Because <laughs> I know the games, you compete hard and then you party hard. I think the second week of the games, I was there working. I had no voice. Yes. <laughs> I mean, how much how much drinking partying well, have you done? Um, I think I'd only done, we did the night out after directly after the event. So our race was on Super Saturday. Um, so I was in a bar when Greg Rutherford won. And then, you know, the, the circus of events that happened that evening. Um, and every now and again, we just look up at the screen and be like, oh, we've won another one. Oh, we've won another one. And it was just really, you know, that was really cool. So I had that night where a lot of my friends who I sort of started the sport with, they all came to London and we all sort of had a really good night out together. And then I hadn't gone out for a couple of nights. um, And then we were sort of, we knew there was a big party coming uh, that was organized for all the triathletes the night of the men's race. So I'd sort of almost been just kind of bumbling along waiting. And then as soon as the men finished, things just took off. And yeah, I mean, without going into details, I lost my wallet, my passport, my phone. Uh, The one thing that I managed not to lose was my ID, my, um, my, uh, what's it called? Accreditation. That's it. Accreditation. (laughs) Because that is your ticket to everything. And if you've got accreditation, you can get back into the village and they will feed you and they will give you water and you have a bed. And so basically you don't need anything else. So, um, yeah, I did, I did go, I guess, pretty heavy on the enjoyment factor of things post men's race. But before that, I was actually still very much in one piece. (laughs) You should though. I love it. It's like you tapered towards the, you had one big night and then you tapered a little bit for the last blowout. I love it. Yeah, um, we'll move on to your third point, which is one that I read because obviously I've known you since probably were like eleven or something ridiculous. Yes, and, and I read this actually, not realizing this about you, which I guess shows you never quite know what goes on inside people's heads and in you know behind closed doors. Um, but you had a camp um, in Samaritz in 2013 where you really felt that you left behind a really negative relationship or a mentality with food and your weight. Uh, so tell us a bit more about kind of this camp that I guess changed your life really. Yeah, I mean, San Moritz is a lot to answer for. <laughs> um, I, as I sort of mentioned earlier with, with 2012, change had to come for me. I knew that there was time, it was time for me to move on. And 
as it turned out later that year, when I had the conversations with my coach, I think he very, very much had already decided that that was the right thing for us both as well. Um, so for a little while, I sort of bumbled along on my own at home and I moved back to the UK and I was sort of just trying to find my place again and work out exactly what it was that I, I needed to improve on and how I was going to get there. And I hadn't, I hadn't figured it out. And I got invited to a British national camp in Samaritz. And uh, I got there and there was a large proportion of the, the funded athletes in the UK um, at the time and also some training partners. So there were a lot of people that I knew having been part of the, the setup for a little while. And then there were some people that I didn't know who were on this camp. And it was the first real sort of national camp that I'd been on in quite a long time because all, all the training camps I'd done had been with this sort of separate international training group that I'd been training with. And for probably as long as I can remember, the biggest issue that any coach had ever had with me was always my weight. It was never um, that I didn't work hard enough. It was never that I didn't give a hundred percent. It was never that I wasn't competitive or motivated. It was that, yeah, but Vicky, you're too big for, for an endurance athlete and we need you to slim down a bit and okay, go and see this nutritionist. And okay, now we're going to try this diet and we're going to do weekly weigh-ins and we're going to do weekly skin folds or maybe more than that. And I still believe that all the people, because it's not just one person that's been, you know, multiple, I guess, coaches. And I do think things are different now. I don't think this would this would necessarily happen anymore. Um, but it was it was, I think, a grad, very gradual grinding down of my um, belief in myself to be able to do what they wanted me to do. And it was the one thing I couldn't do. I couldn't seem to lose weight especially in the ways that I was being told and a lot of the ways I was being advised to, if I look back now, were really quite aggressive. Um, the restriction in calories or, you know, a lot of it was to do with, well, you should have the willpower. You should just have the willpower to do this. And it was something I really couldn't do. And again, looking back, I would say, I would never say I had an eating disorder, but I would say I did have some quite disordered eating habits um, because I was trying so hard to do these things that people were telling me to do. And inevitably I would be restrictive because that's what I was being advised to do. And then I couldn't, I just couldn't. And I'd explode and I'd eat way too much. And I would never do, I, I never had um, bulimia or anything like that, but I definitely had some sort of binge eating traits. And it was just all because of trying so hard to do the right thing that I was being advised to do and I carried a lot of baggage with that and if I look back now at photos from kind of before this time in 2013 kind of anything before then at times I almost just look quite bloated um and I think that if you look at you you know now that that's actually a real telltale sign of someone who's dealing with some kind of eating issue. If they sort of look and my face was bloated and I was, I was this bigger athlete and I couldn't seem to get out of this cycle because I was just desperately trying to do the things that I was being advised to do. And yeah, I'd, I'd left this coaching group um, in 2012 and there were so many amazing things from that training group, but this was the one thing that really never went in my favor and that was always there in my mind that I'm failing at this. I can't do this. The coach isn't happy with me. Um, and I, I, I couldn't stick to anything they wanted me to do. And I felt like I really needed to try and like almost like kickstart my metabolism again, because I'd probably got it to a point where it wasn't working especially well because it was fed up with me mucking around with it all the time. Turned up on this training camp in 2013. And within the first few days, 
we're all eating together every evening. We're really lucky. One of the the nutritionists who works British triathlon was there. She was cooking for the whole team. Turn up, there's 15 athletes, maybe more in this one big apartment or eating. Everyone is eating like a horse. Everyone is eating tons of food. Everyone's having dessert every day. Um, I remember vividly the boys complaining because um, some of the food was too healthy. Um, You know, just crazy compared to what I had, you know, everything had been ingrained in me for such a long time at this point. And we were training so much. Like we were training way more volume than I'd ever done before. And I was in this group of girls who um, were all at the time based up in Leeds. And I knew them through triathlon, but I didn't know them that well. But I was spending all this time with them on the camp, getting really stuck in with the training, doing all this volume, eating tons and seeing weight fall off me. And it was just a light bulb. It was like, oh, my God, these people, they eat properly and they train properly. And then their body just takes care of itself. And it was absolutely life changing for me because it was something that I just never thought I'd get out of this horrible cycle that felt so ingrained. And this thing that I was just a failure at. And then all of a sudden, when I stopped trying and started just eating normally and doing tons of training, it just happened. And part of me couldn't believe it had taken all this time until I was, you know, 27 or whatever I was at this point. Um, But yeah, it was it was a really magical camp for me. And on top of all that is actually where I met Reese. So Reese was there as a training partner at the time. It was before he'd started coaching. And um, I wasn't single at the time. Nothing, you know, happened on that camp. It's where we met. Um, and, you know, a year later or eight months, no, maybe how we're, where we're thinking, trying to try and do the maths here quickly. Maybe, I don't know, 10 months later, we started dating. Um, but yeah, that, that, that camp is definitely a moment that I'll always, I'll always look back to as just kind of helping me change my whole mentality and my relationship with food and with myself and with my body and I came off this camp went straight to a race and had my best ever race came fourth in a world series and at that point that was that was my best ever performance and the three girls who beat me that day were the three the top three in the world as well so it wasn't even like it was a a race where some of the top athletes weren't there I went there I was in such good shape both in terms of my actual fitness but also my physical shape and I had a great race and it was just it was it, it was a really magical month for me. That's so incredible to hear that sort of journey you've been on through all of that. And I think a lot of athletes will be able to relate to everything you've just said. A lot lot of women will as well, because we're often told we need to be a certain size, a certain shape, a certain weight. And when you come from sports as well that have a certain power to weight ratio element to them, certainly cycling is like that. Swimming, I mean, you're parading around in a swimming costume. Triathlon, you're in not much more. And then obviously... um, what's the other one cycling swimming running you you know there's a certain body shape that, that's expected for that one as well um so I can understand exactly why you have been through that and I think many will be able to relate to what you've just said do you ever find yourself having any intrusive negative thoughts now or do you feel you really put it all to bed in 2013 yeah I think in some ways it, it there's always a little something in there but actually I'm I'm really good with it now and actually more than anything I I make sure I don't lose too much weight at the wrong times of year now. So 
Yeah, Reese is really good with this as well. He'll tell me off if he thinks I'm too lean. Um, he will make he'll be he'll be you know looking at me going, "It's January. Be careful. We're not having you being too lean right now. You actually need a little bit of extra fat on you through the winter. It's not good to be lean all the time." It's a really um, easy way to get injured when your body fat's too low. So, no, I'm I'm really good at making sure now that I never go too lean too early. I know if I want to be, you know, leaner than a certain level, my bo- my body knows now. My body sort of always sorted itself out where it likes to sit, and then maybe when I want to be like Olympic shape, it's got to dip a bit below that. And so I'll only ever put myself into that kind of right. Okay, I'm going to dip a little bit below that, and I'll only do that in the couple of months or so, maybe even less than that around the major games. Otherwise, I just I just won't do it. I don't think it's it's necessary for me. Um, and, you know, I, I I spent a long time with people telling me sort of this is going to be your magic number. If you hit this weight, that's going to be what's right for you. And different people had different ideas on what that was going to be. And I never hit any of the numbers that they, they thought I was going to be. I am still a bigger athlete than pretty much anybody when I was, you know, a developing athlete thought I should be. Um, but I found the weight that works for me. And I think one of the really amazing things in triathlon now is that you look at the top girls in the sport and we're all different. There isn't one body shape and size that seems to be right. Um, You've got people who literally look like endurance runners, the classic endurance runner. And I I say that with a completely understanding that I don't want to pigeonhole endurance runners because no one should be pigeonholed. That's the whole point. Um, But you would look at them and probably think they were an endurance runner. And then you've got people who look like they're probably a swimmer with broader shoulders. And then you've got people with a much higher muscle content than others. And then you've got people who are really lean. So you can see the muscle definition and then people who aren't honestly, there's, there's pretty much everybody type is covered now in triathlon, especially female triathlon where, Hey, we're all different. Right. And, and I think that is really helping shape the education that goes to younger girls now coming through the sport. Yeah, absolutely. No, you're so right. And I'm so glad that you, you got through that and that you began to find a much healthier, more positive relationship with food. Cause I've been working with a, a nutritionist just on off kind of trying to keep track of being a bit more accountable for what I'm eating while I'm trying to do, you know, my kind of basic level training, nothing like what you, what you do <laughs> at all. Um, and her name's Jenny Pound. She's a um, pro rider as well. And she has to drill into me. There's no such thing as good or bad food. There's yeah. just fuel that you put into your body and we need to take away all that guilt and all the restriction and all the sort of association we have with certain foods being bad, like carb. Like I love carbs and I love <sighs> pasta. Oh my God, I had pasta for lunch like an hour ago. <laughs> it's it's the thing that um I do a lot of interviews and even things like um webinars seminars for um uh, my sponsors for example and one of the most commonly asked questions is around food and about how I fuel and I really struggle at times not to get like properly on my high horse about it because people it, what really gets me what really grates me is when people are oh well I guess you can't eat cake can you and all would you, oh, will, will you be allowed to treat yourself today? Or, oh, and I'm like, it's not a treat. And yes, I can eat cake. And actually anything is fine. Like it's the same principle as anything in your life. Anything in moderation is absolutely fine. And I think that is a thing that a lot of people, whether they are professional or amateur in sport, don't, don't accept. It's almost like you've got to go 110% onto clean eating so far 
that it's I don't think clean eating if you like is actually that clean when you go so far beyond um actually fueling your body properly I'm not sure that's okay and I think yeah I just I, I won't rant about it anymore but suffice to say if anyone ever asks me about what I eat I will give them a really straight answer and I will say I eat what my body needs I'm not afraid to put anything into it I do not demonize foods I definitely don't demonize sugar I probably eat too much sugar I might have to cut some of it out probably just for my own general well-being not because of weight um but yeah I just don't believe in restriction I don't think it's okay <laughs> amen there you go. Yeah. You've said what you got to Okay, moving on. Um, your next moment is Rio 2016, of course, which we've kind of discussed as well, winning that Olympic bronze. And then the fallout from that as well and in leaving Leeds. Yeah, so Rio comes around and I've been... I moved up to Leeds off the back of that 2013 camp in San Moritz. I went home. I was only back at home for maybe a month, two months before the decision was taken that I was moving full time up to Leeds and that this was going to be the next part of my career. And those three years in Leeds were magical for me. I really did um, convert myself from the person who was just scraped into the Olympic Games and was delighted to have gone to an Olympic Games but wanted more into that person who had qualified for Olympic Games. I'd won Commonwealth medals, I'd won um, World Series events and yeah I was on on the plane to Rio knowing that I was not necessarily a favourite but definitely a contender for, for a medal out there and uh, that race in Rio, you know, I, I learned a lot about myself because I wasn't actually especially well that day. I'd, I'd got a bit of a stomach bug that had been going around. Um, and I mean, I'd woken up at 4 a.m. race morning and rushed to the toilet because things were not well. <laughs> um, I'll, I won't spare, I'll spare you the details, but it was not uh, it was not what you want to be woken up. My alarm did not go off. My stomach went off, you know, so it was it was not OK. And I remember just sitting on the floor outside the physiotherapist room who I'd knocked on her door at half past four in the morning thinking, I can't believe this is how it's going to end for me. I've, I've done all the right preparation. I feel so amazing. I was so excited to get on a plane here. I know this is my opportunity. I feel, I feel better than I've ever felt. And I've picked up some bloody stomach bug the day before the race. And here I am sat here on the floor while we speak to the doctor back home in the UK and work out if there's anything I can take that's legal. What can I do? Um, can I eat anything? All these kind of things. And I think what I learned that day is how tough I actually am. And sometimes I don't probably give myself credit for that. But the fact that I sort of picked myself up and went, okay, well, these are the things I can do. This is what I, I'm going to try and eat because these are the things that I've been told are going to settle my stomach. Um, I drank a lot of flat Coke that day. Um, that was that was the magic formula. Um, I remember sitting in my room just before I went down thinking, okay, well, you're just going to have to give it a go. You didn't come all this way and do all this work and do all this preparation to sit here and miss out. You're just going to have to go and give it a go. And if it, if it goes badly, it goes badly, but you just got to give it a go. And it was a case of just take every stage of the race as it comes. So first point on the swim. Okay. I didn't get into a, I didn't have a great start, but I was sort of okay. And then by halfway through the swim, okay, actually I'm in a better place now. I'm kind of right in the pack where I need to be. And then towards the end of the swim, I sort of moved up a few more places. Okay. Take that section of swim. That was good. Right. Okay. First section on the bike, we've got to go up the really big hill. Can I make it up the hill? Am I going to be okay? Get up the hill the first lap. Okay. Tick that's done. Right. Fine. I made it up here. 
And, you know, I just sort of broke down every section of the race like that. And, you know, I actually, um, I took a, a, an energy gel uh, right near the end of the bike and threw it up immediately. Um, and people don't know that, but I was, I was actually sick in the race in Rio. And then at the start of the run, I remember kind of trying to get into my, my rhythm and just feel like, okay, what's going to dictate how fast I run today is not my heart and lungs and it's not my legs it's my stomach and I'm I'm going to be able to run as fast as my stomach allows me and then I'm that's it you know that was that was that was a there was a whole nother limiting factor that I never expected to be there on that day and on top of that I then end up in a battle with you know my best friend in the sport at the time my housemate the girl that I've done all my preparation with and that we you know dreamed together of bringing home to two Olympic medals and I have to work out how I'm going to outwit her, outsmart her in the last lap of the run at the Olympic Games. So I think there are so many lessons that I probably have only reflected on much later on. I never really appreciated them at the time and how amazing an achievement it is. I mean, to deliver an Olympic medal with all the different things going on around anyway is something special. But to do it when you're not quite well and to do it when you're placed head to head with a really close friend all those sorts of things. I think I, I just learned so much about myself and yeah, it was, it, it, I don't know. I think now I'm probably proud, more proud of it than I, than I was at the time. At the time I, I almost had felt like I had to downplay it a little bit. Um, whereas now maybe as I'm a bit older and I, I am coming towards the end of my career now, I, I kind of look at it, but look back at it and say, yeah, God, I did that. That was, that was something special, wasn't it? <laughs> you and I, we've talked about you winning bronze a number of occasions and how brilliant it is and how amazing it is. And I've never once heard that story. Yeah, um, it's funny. I, I guess I don't really mention it that much. Like, I, I think I, I never wanted it to be like, oh, but I could have done this if I hadn't been sick or, you know, and, and I don't want, I never want to give people a reason to kind of, um, judge in that way and kind of criticize what I'm saying and that's probably something that I'm a bit uh, guilty of is sort of just like shying away from that level of of um, I guess confrontation about what I'm up to and and what what I say about my races and um, yeah I just I know I wasn't 100% that day I know I was definitely below par <laughs> um, but I think the one saving grace was I didn't get this stomach bug until really last minute. So I think actually I had absorbed quite a lot the day before. Um, one of the other girls on the team, Helen, actually, um, I only found out afterwards, she was suffering the same as I was, but she'd got it earlier. So she almost was like completely depleted by the time the race came around because she just hadn't absorbed anything for a couple of days. Whereas for me, it was only probably like the 12 hours before the race. So I still had just about enough stores and that that flat Coke that Reese went out and got me on <laughs> Olympic morning. I remember um, after I'd been sort of unwell on Olympic morning, I, I, I messaged Reese. This is, yeah, it's like 4.30 or something in the morning not thinking he'd be awake but just by complete chance because he wasn't allowed to stay with us he was in the next door building he um he just been to the toilets so we just checked his phone when he went back to bed and I just messaged him like a minute before so we ended up having this sort of text conversation um and I again only know now what was going on with him and how sort of stressful that was for him to kind of think god this girl that I've that we've done all this together and that I've been part of this journey with her and also, obviously, I'm, I'm his girlfriend. 
she's she's dealing with this stomach bug um but he was brilliant and it was a case of okay what can I do and once I'd spoken to the medical team it was right let's go and get you some flat coke so Reese is straight straight down the shops in Ipanema um to to get me <laughs> to get me some flat coke and deliver it to me and was completely calm and composed when I saw him um you know that morning at seven o'clock or whatever it was by then and uh yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a really, I think, magical sort of story for both of us of just everything that went on that day because we basically weren't together until after the race um, other than for those like two minutes where I saw him. Um, but all the stuff that's going on for both of us and the emotion that goes with it. Um, and then finally got to see him again after the race. I'm like, oh, I got a medal. <laughs> he must have felt so helpless in that moment, just thinking, all I can do is get her coke. That's it. Yeah, I must I know. have been such a horrible feeling for him. I think it was. Worse I think for it, you, but... No, but I do. I think it was worse for him to watch it. I do. I think it was yeah. worse for him to watch it, that feeling of, like, desperation and helplessness. And, yeah, I think he won't mind me saying for him it was a really emotional day as well. Just that roller coaster day of, oh, I can't believe it's going to end for her like this. Um, or this this Olympic journey is going to end for her like this all the way through to the point where, you know, firstly, OK, I took the start line. Secondly, OK, I, I made that pack on the bike and OK, now I'm still in the pack. And OK, now she's fighting for a medal and, and all of that, like the, the emotional roller coaster for him. I think it probably took years off his life. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and a word on non as well. What are your emotions now? Because you said that you've, you're only just coming to terms I think with how you felt that day and actually the magnitude of what you did achieve you said sorry when she came over the line about a couple of seconds back behind you I remember watching it and you turned to her and said I think I'm so sorry because you'd beaten yeah. her of course to fourth I know and it's it's still really difficult just because she Non is three years younger than me, but I always felt like she taught me stuff like when I moved in with her she was just crown the world champion so I moved up to Leeds I moved my whole life I changed everything clean fresh start you know new life for me and I moved in with this girl who just won the world title and I couldn't have had a better like tutor if you like in terms of how to go about this 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 incredibly difficult um intense way of training to become a become a world champion and to to achieve really great things and yeah, she, in like I said, in so many ways, I always felt like she was the one who taught me stuff and that I was almost the understudy to her. And I think even in the build-up to the games um, of the three of us, I think I was probably the one that flew under the radar a little bit more than the other two. Um, both the other two had won World Series races in 2016, whereas I hadn't. Um, so, yeah, I was definitely, I think, perhaps maybe the underdog, and I just think I wanted it so badly for both of us. Like we were just so close at that time. We still lived together. And it was this really amazing three-year journey that we'd been on. And I wanted it for both of us. And I knew as much as I was delighted and relieved and almost in disbelief that I'd been able to do it and this feeling of joy, I was gutted for her. And I knew she was going to be gutted as well. And I knew that fourth place is just such a horrible place to finish at the Olympic Games. And I, I knew that she would be amazing, and she was, but I also knew she'd be devastated. And I think I probably took that on really heavily in the months that followed 
of being really conscious, just trying not to rub it in her face. And, you know, I, I don't really know how well I did at that. I think I did okay. Um, she um, also left to go to Australia quite quickly after the Olympic Games because her boyfriend is Australian. Her, well, now her fiance, Aaron, he's Australian. So in a lot of ways, I think that was really good for her to kind of take herself away from the UK when the Olympians are all coming back to the UK. There's all these people who've been successful at the Games. There's all these kind of parades happening. And for someone who was so close yet so far, um, to see that is quite hard and doesn't really allow you to grieve, I think. Um, so for her to go to Australia was probably the right move at that time. But yeah, I guess I was just... I was just aware that I desperately didn't want her to resent me. Um, I didn't want it to come in the way of us. And I don't think it did. I think, you know, I think that's a testament to her especially, but also to who we are as, as our friendship. But yeah, I've always, I've always felt like there was more for none and that there will be more for none. And I know that it, it looks like it can't happen this time for the Olympic games, but I would love to see her achieve great things in the sport and outside of the sport because I think she's a great human and she deserves it oh god that's so beautiful that's so, I'm so glad that yeah there is no bad blood there and, and you guys worked through it together um you mentioned of course within this moment as well that post Rio you and Reese decided to leave Leeds um mm. and I guess that was a real moment of madness from other people thinking what on earth are you doing you just won Olympic bronze here the setup is working it's perfect why rock the boat yeah, I think there's so much going on really around around Rio and um it it became kind of clear to us throughout 2016 that Leeds wasn't necessarily the place that we should stay forever. Um especially for Reese, he's coming to but he's moved if you like transitioned from being uh, a training partner an athlete um, to being you know an athlete in his own right as well as a training partner I should say but he's moved across to starting to coach me and then having more and more of an input on my coaching because he was really sort of a part of my coaching plan in the build-up to Rio and then he sort of took over that fully after Rio um, but for a young coach for the development of his career he wasn't going to get the opportunities he needed to develop he wasn't going to be exposed to almost like running a training center in in Leeds so we kind of had to make a decision that we probably needed to move. And, you know, he'd also been in Leeds for seven plus years at the time. He went there to study and then stayed on. I'd been there for three years. We're both from the Southwest regionally. And, you know, there were there were other factors as well, but they're probably the main ones. And we just sort of felt like we we had to take a chance and do it. And I had this, this real belief that Reese could do this. He some people may have said, oh, but he's only, I don't even know how old he was at Rio, 25. He's only 25. He's hes not ready to lead your program entirely. You've just won an Olympic medal and this place that works with all these other athletes that are great training partners and it's an inspirational place to be and all of this. And they would be right. It was a massive decision to leave. And I tell you now, there were tears. There were tears when I left. And I, I remember even the, the biggest thing was leaving on. Honestly, I shed so many tears that day. I cried halfway from Leeds to, to Bath in the car. Um, but it felt like we needed to do it. It felt like it was it was a, a crossroads for both of us. And it was an opportunity for Reese. And I, for a long time, said after Rio, if the right thing for us to do is to move, 
for Reese will do it because he was doing so much for me in the build up to the games. And we are a partnership. We are a team. But it felt like it was skewed towards me with my focus on the Olympics. And then beyond the Olympics, it was like, okay, well, what do we need to do for your career now? And we made this decision. British Triathlon gave Reese the opportunity to head up a centre down here in Bath. Um, there weren't any elite athletes here really at the time. There were a couple actually of long course people, but no one who did the short course, the Olympic distance racing. And yeah, we came down here and it was a massive change. You know, I, I can't say it was easy. It was harder than we both thought it was going to be, um, especially for me leaving behind a really tight network of girls that I was really close with in Leeds. Um, and for months, I found it really difficult here. I also got a major injury. Um, I actually came down here with an injury that then escalated <laughs> um, and made 2017 a pretty rough year for, for us on, on so many so many counts. But fundamentally, we made the decision based on Reese's career and the fact that I had full faith in him, probably more so than maybe a lot of other people did at that point. But I believed he had what it took to run a program, to run my program and to keep me at the level that I was at then. And yeah, it was possibly a gamble, <laughs> but I think in hindsight, it paid off. <laughs> it did pay off because in 2018, of course, this is your fifth and final moment. You became a world champion. But with that, we talked about it earlier. You had to confront your imposter syndrome. Yeah. So 2017 was this difficult year everything changed we moved to Bath we were trying to start things up from scratch here really and um, there was very little infrastructure in place already and we were trying to make it a sort of a viable training centre um, as I mentioned I was battling this injury that sort of was there then not there and then really there which took me out for the whole year I did one race all year and that race qualified me for the Commonwealth Games following year so on the plus side at least I had that focus I had that one race that I knew was coming in the beginning of April of 2018 and that was the focus so that kind of got me through and you know we battled but we got there and we got to Commonwealth Games in really good shape but I think we just overcooked it I think we we've looked back at it quite a quite a lot now and I think we we got a bit a bit obsessive we got um we were like desperately trying to replicate everything we did in the build-up to, to to Rio and we got really and I especially got really obsessive over session details that perhaps didn't matter and it was a more stressful experience than I probably should have let it become and so we didn't quite get it right. And I finished fourth in the individual. Uh, we brought him a silver in the relay. I actually think I was much better in the relay than I was in the individual. Um, but yeah, I was disappointed. I, I went there thinking that I had had what it took to win and that I'd had this layoff from injury, but that I was back and that I was ready and that I could, I could really deliver. And I was disappointed for sure. And I came home and a few weeks later started sort of the World Series for the year. And things just kind of fell into place. I went to Bermuda and I came second. I went to Leeds and I won. Um, I went to Hamburg and crashed, which was a bit of a nightmare, but then bounced back with a win in Edmonton, another win in Montreal. And then by that point, I go to the grand final and it's like all of a sudden, this is a head-to-head -head for the world title. It's it's me versus Katie Tavares, an American athlete. And whoever basically finishes in front of the other, no matter what position we finish, all the way down to about 15th, I think, the, we would win. It was There was no one else in the, in the fight at that point. It was just us two. And it kind of, everything just sort of fell into place. It didn't actually feel that hard. It, after all the battles of the year before, it just kind of happened. 
And before I know it, I'm world champion. I'm like, how on earth did this happen? I never thought I'd be able to win a world title because it's for us one over a series of events. And I've always considered myself a one day racer. It's what it's what fires me up, really. I, li- I like the idea of putting everything into a one day race and performing to my best on that one day. But this was different. This is a this is a series of six, seven races across a year. And um I just never thought that was my bag, but I did it. And it was it was really bizarre to sort of feel like I did it. But almost immediately, I felt this kind of, and I don't want to call it pressure because actually I don't think it really was pressure, but it was this feeling of, oh, but I kind of fluked it. Oh, but I only won because that person was injured. Oh, but actually that race that I won in Leeds, loads of people were ill that day. And there was loads of just little things like that. And it took me a really long time. And actually with the only really with the help of a sports psychiatrist that I started seeing the following following spring to realize that actually I deserved some credit for what I did. And yeah, you're right. There was a massive level of imposter syndrome that went through that whole winter after I'd won that world title in 2018, all the way through to 2019. This feeling of I'm not really good enough to wear this world title and people are going to find me out. And it wasn't that I hadn't trained hard my whole life or that I didn't have actually quite a lot of results behind me by this point. But I never, yeah, I never expected to sort of finally get to the top, that top rung of the ladder that you fought so hard to get to for so long and then get there and be like, I'm not really worthy of this. Like, I don't, I don't think I've, I don't think I've done it. I don't think I've actually, I, I don't, I don't feel good about it. I don't feel proud in the way that I should feel about it. And yeah, it it was something that really affected me and, you know, took a toll on me, took a toll on me and Reese over the following sort of six months or so where, yeah, I just, I really struggled with my, with my why, why do I do this? Why am I doing this? I struggled to just accept what I'd done. I I struggled to, I, I hated the thought. I always had this thought that people were judging me, that people were saying, oh, but she's not really that good. Um, and I hated this idea that people were actually only with you when you're successful and that as soon as you maybe have a bad race, they disappear. And that was something that I very much had to come to terms with the following year when I did struggle. I massively struggled. And it was almost the worst thing that could happen and the best thing that could happen because the worst thing is, oh, my God, this is everything I feared. I feared I wasn't really good enough. And then I've come out the following year and I'm not delivering the results that I did last year. So on the one hand, it's reinforcing all those things in your head. But at the same time, it's kind of like, well, if this is the worst, this isn't that bad. Like if this is me not really performing that well in most of the races, but actually performing quite well in the one that mattered, which was the Tokyo test event, um, then actually that's that's not really that bad. And working with a psychiatrist, I think, was the first time in a, in a very long time that I sat down and worked out kind of who I am as a person when I'm not a triathlete. And I think it's really important to keep hold of that because everything about me for so long had been tied up in my identity as, a, as an athlete, as a triathlete, as someone achieving or trying to achieve major goals, major games, glory, win world titles, all the rest of it. I sort of forgot what I was actually about as a person at times. And yeah, I think now I'm much better equipped to deal with things, to deal with victories and defeats and harder times because actually I... I know who I am when I'm not an athlete. I know the things that are important to me. I also know absolutely why I do this sport. I know what kind of legacy I want to leave behind. I know what I hope to inspire in other people. Um, I 
yeah, I, I think I'm so much clearer on those things that maybe I was just a bit lost with for a really long time. And yeah, you would think that after winning a world title, you'd be on, on cloud nine. But I think for me, very, very quickly, I sort of felt like this impending sense of doom and I couldn't explain it for a really long time until, yeah, I started working with someone who just kind of helped me unravel <laughs> those thoughts. <laughs> I love that you've been on such a, a journey with um, therapy to an extent, but working with a sports psychiatrist and trying to unpick these feelings because that's exactly what therapy or, or similar is. It kind of is this really empowering process that you go through where you become completely aware of who you are and why you do what you do and why you think a certain way and how to work with the way you're thinking to be a better person and I should have said this at the start but for those wondering imposter syndrome the definition is the internal experience of believing you are not as competent as others perceive you to be and I think on one hand it's incredible to me that you've been through that as somebody who from a young age, Vicky, you know, I always used to look up to you so much when we were training together because you were, oh my God, it's Vicky Holland. And then <laughs> I'd be in, you know, the lane, like one, one away from the top lane and I'd be looking over and it'd be me and you leading both lanes. And I'd always think to myself, if I'm up there with Vicky, I'm having a good session today. <laughs> so there's, a, there's a level of comfort, I think for me and maybe for all people listening as well, that actually if a world champion and Olympic medalist can still feel imposter syndrome, <laughs> it's okay to feel it like it, it happens to anyone no matter who they are but it sounds like you've worked out your why and it, I think had that perspective as well that take away triathlon take away the results and the medals and you're still a human being with with a purpose and with people who love you and, and with an entirely rich wonderful life as well yeah I think one of the things I sort of struggled with was knowing who was around me and in my team for the right reasons and there were people who come out of the woodwork if you like when you do really well and it's all really flattering and really nice and it's the same kind of thing of having you know 2,000 likes on an Instagram photo oh that's really nice oh I've got 2,000 likes on an Instagram photo and I remember for a while being like every time I posted something monitoring really closely like what happened and being like oh that didn't get that didn't hit as many likes what was wrong with that one and I, I caught myself doing that quite early and sort of kind of cut that out and I I don't really use Instagram a huge amount anymore I do still use it I'm still I'm still there um but it's one of the things that I'm wary of because I think you get very easily hooked into thinking that your worth is tied into how many likes or comments or followers or anything and there was this part of me that's like well why am I not as popular as them do people hate me does nobody like to see me succeed and I had this feeling of, um, I definitely for a while was like, people only support you when you're on the way up. And then when you get to the top, they want to see you fail. And yeah, there might be some element of that. But what I came to realize was, even if that's true, don't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter what any of those people think. I'm not doing it for them. I realized that's what the whole working out my why and my purpose and what I'm trying to do. Um, because at times it felt like, you know, for me, when I wasn't feeling, you know, great about triathlon and about who I was and all the rest of it, it felt like I was a bit like, why am I doing this? Like who, what, what kind of purpose is there to me running around in Lycra all the time? I'm not helping anyone. I should be doing something more purposeful with my life and better for people. And yeah, I, I really struggled with that for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, I feel like now I'm so much clearer on 
the good that can come from things like social media and from people's support, but also that if you let it get to you, it will get you down. And there's always going to be someone who doesn't like you. You're not their favorite athlete. They don't like the way you race. They really like your number one rival or whatever it is. And that's okay. Their opinion is actually none of your business. And if it wasn't for social media, you'd probably never know their opinion. And you might not even know their opinion. You might just be assuming their opinion, but all those kind of things, piecing that together and working out my, uh, my own processes in my mind was something that, that took a while, but yeah, I feel much more, I think, robust now because going into this, which may or may not be my final year of competing, I, I haven't really decided yet, but will more than likely be my last ever major games. I know that when I'm done, when that day is done in, in Tokyo later this year, I will be over the moon if I achieve all my my personal goals for that day. And I will be devastated if I don't. And that's okay. That's human nature. But beyond that, there's a whole life for me that doesn't revolve around what result I get that day and that people's opinion of what result I get that day. And that that is that is very, I think, liberating to know that sport is huge and it's everything. And I've put so much into it, so many years, but that it's not everything in my whole world. My world is much bigger than just sport now. And I really recognize that. Whereas before, probably I was a little bit blind to it. <laughs> yeah, it's not the be all and end all, is it? For sure. I'm sitting here literally nodding along to everything you're saying because I have, I understand and I completely empathize and resonate with so much of what you've just said. And I will finish by saying thoughts are not facts. And what other people think of you is none of your business. Absolutely. Two Couldn't things we should all live by. Vicky, this has been an absolute joy. And I feel like even though I've known you for years, I know you so much better now. <laughs> and I'm just so glad that you have, you feel that you've really developed as a person over certainly the last kind of two, two years or so, and that you're now this much more well-rounded version of, of yourself. And I think that is so lovely to hear. So thank you for being so honest and sharing so much and best of luck this year as well. It's going to be huge. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, I've never really shared a lot of that stuff before, but hey, maybe it's maybe it's going to be helpful to someone. <laughs> oh, without doubt. Thank you so much. I'll see you soon, Vicky. Take care. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Oh, wow. Thank you so much to Vicky for such honesty. I've known her years and never heard her speak with such openness and share those stories. Her life moments blew me away. I really hope you enjoyed that episode too. And do get in touch with your comments and feedback. That's it for today. Don't forget, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a review for the podcast as well. Lessons Learned is out weekly this series, dropping every Monday. So I'll be back next time with another brilliant guest from the world of sport to reflect on the lessons we learn in every human experience. Until then, take care and see you soon. <laughs>